0: All right. Excited to be joined by the one and only Isaac Morehouse, the living legend. He is founder of multiple companies, including co-founder of Praxis, the career launch program for young people. It's helped 500 plus people launch careers without college. He is CMO at Reveal. He's an unschooling dad. speaking to philosophy, economics, personal growth, and he's been a big influence on my life and career. So welcome, Isaac.
1: Thank you very much, Joel. Uh, I have a little a little glass of whiskey with me here because it's going to be that kind of interview.
0: Oh, okay, okay. I didn't know that, but let's let's do it.
1: <laughs> if I'm talking to Joel, I, gotta I got keep my it real. I got
0: my glass of lime water over here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, very real.
0: <laughs> cool, man. Well, yeah. Let's. We're gonna. I got. I got an outline here, but who knows what that what's going to happen with the outline? Um, excited to just kind of let things fly, but I want to start with a certain question. So you've started multiple companies that have the mission to help people discover and do what makes them come alive. I just want to hear from you in a couple sentences, like what makes you come alive?
1: Making other people come alive makes me come alive. It sounds, that sounds really cheesy, but I mean, I think, I think two things make me come alive. One is writing just writing of any kind. If it's just me sitting in front of a screen, a blank page and writing, it's the greatest feeling in the world. But that's like like that feels amazing and I think it does make me come alive to a degree, but it but it runs out. That's more like a rejuvenating type of a thing when I get a little bit drained from, you know, sort of doing things out there in the world interacting with people. That's my happy place. So, it makes me come alive in a sense but it's more like, I need it to survive. Helping other people overcome obstacles they didn't think they could overcome. Or even, it's really more about giving people a, a lens to see the world and themselves, how they relate to that world. like To see what's possible and to see how they relate to what's possible in a different way that's exciting to me I'm not the type who wants to like be there and hold someone's hand all the way along the process like I'm not really good at like coaching people and I'm not a very good manager uh as a <laughs> in business I, I I always say that um, I'm really good at managing people that don't need to be managed and not anybody else um but it's more like having interactions, conversations, creating content uh having you know creating concepts discussions that shatter things that were, I guess you would, you would call them limiting beliefs. I know you use that language a lot that like shatter limiting beliefs. And it's kind of like, I like to drop that bomb that shatters that belief and make somebody say for the first time, maybe I really do want this. Maybe I really could do that. Maybe I really should do this. And it like breaks those shackles and sets them free. Freedom is really like the core word that I always come back to, like making people free, making them more free. To pursue what makes them come alive, if I can do that, that's what makes me come alive.
0: You said a few a few words, and that was more than a few I knew, words I knew it was going to be more than a few words, but I love it and the The writing piece is more like getting to that flow state too, like because there's the process, and then there's like the big picture big, big mission stuff, but then there's like the day to day experience um there's the act of being in the state of writing, but I'm really curious just real quick. When you write or you tell yourself I'm going to do a blog post today do you still feel a resistance to starting
1: That's a great question because I absolutely felt a resistance to starting like pretty much every time for a long time at least several months maybe even a couple of years I actually don't think I feel a resistance to starting anymore I guess maybe the the current and this shifts and changes all the time the current sort of resistance that I face when it comes to writing is asking myself if I ought not to start being more strategic or okay, maybe just instead of sitting down and just writing whatever comes to mind each day, should I like focus more on doing writing that's more strategically valuable to the business that I'm working on right now or part of some bigger project where I'm going to like write a book down the road or something like that. And I think I've, I've, kind of said yeah I'm going to try to do that a little bit um, so I do less like I'm, I don't I don't post publicly on my blog every day I haven't for a while I just kind of have like very randomly and I've gone back and forth on whether I should keep doing that cuz I I it's like I like it it's good for me but I almost wonder if it's become too comfortable and too easy the fact that when I sit down to just write a blog post for my own personal blog I really don't face any resistance at all That's kind of like why I stopped doing it. I'm like, I don't know if this is doing anything for me anymore. Am I just kind of like repeating this habit of thinking on the page about whatever small thoughts are there? Should I try to level up and be like, hey, you know, we were just talking about, I just turned 40, like I'm older, I'm further in my career. I should be trying to treat my words like they have more weight, not to to be like cocky or arrogant, like, oh, I'm some sage, everyone's waiting on me to speak. But like, what if I forced myself to do that? Because I think to get started, I just needed to say there's no barrier at all. I literally just have to publish every day. Doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter if anyone reads it, doesn't matter if anyone likes it, doesn't matter if I like it, just publish every day. And I got so good at that and it became such a habit and it's like that it's like that cup of coffee you just unthinkingly drink every morning because it's like part of your routine and then you get to the point where you're like maybe I should like what would happen if I didn't do that and tried to only drink coffee when it's an experience that i'm really going to be like in and i'm going to enjoy or i'm going to get something out of it instead of just like the unthinking act and i've kind of gotten to that with with daily writing so i do still write every day but it's primarily things that often they're ghost written or they're things that i'm writing for um work that are sort of longer term and i'm and i'm not entirely sure i like that but i guess that's good that i'm slightly uncomfortable
0: yeah i mean maybe you can do both like the daily blogging just becomes part of the routine as as a fundamental, right? It's a fundamental of your life. Like I'm thinking about your composers in history. Will they, I forget who it was. Who, there was one who just every single day. I think it was maybe Shavinsky, I forget. Every single day, you would play a Bach chorale every morning. But like mm. he was writing all sorts of other stuff that wasn't at all a Bach chorale, like. But it was just like this is almost as meditation. And you get in that flow state and you get in that, you get that creative burst, right? You've talked a lot about that. Like this feels so satisfying to just, just write that first blog post, write that blog post. But then maybe you want to also stretch yourself into another, another sphere.
1: I still like, I'm still, I'm still up in the air on the, on restarting the, the, the daily posts on my blog, because I'm wondering like, do I want to say more or, or maybe I'm wondering like, what? At this stage of life, I feel like I want to be saying something different than what I've been saying for the last 10 years. But I don't know if I know what that is or if I'm ready to start publicly writing about those things. I'm not sure. And like, that's very unusual for me. I'm not an indecisive person. Like, and usually I'm just like, yeah, the hell with it. I'll just do it. So it's just been interesting that I'm kind of like, I have this sense. I just have this sense where it's like, not yet. Keep focusing on what you're doing with your writing. You're doing a lot of writing for work and all this stuff and like keep keep doing that. Not yet. Like there's going to be a time to reopen those daily blog posts and just write what you want to write, but it's like not there yet. And I can't give you a good argument for that except that I just kind of have this sense and there's something kind of exciting about that. It's like I'm going to yeah. I'm going to get to come back to that, but when I return to it, I'm going to be a different person than the one I was when I was doing it before.
0: Yeah, I hear you. Okay, so let's shift a bit. I want to get a little philosophical, and this might do- dovetail into spirituality, metaphysics. Like, we'll see what happens. You recorded a podcast a couple of years ago with Steve Patterson about like what is reality, and sort of mind versus mind versus matter type thing, objective reality versus subjective reality. I'm just I'm just insatiably curious about this topic. I've been exploring this a lot in my own life the past couple of years, and how one's own thoughts, perhaps one's own beliefs and on one's own choice of worldview affects reality itself, potentially. And I know you and I both agree, objective reality is, is a real thing. We're starting from that. Um, but yeah, I would love to just open up to hear where your thinking is right now with, with maybe that interplay between that, that sort of metaphysical interplay between, objective and subjective
1: man, that's a big yeah I feel like I feel like i got to get more pointed to start with, like maybe there's a maybe there's an even more specific do you have an even more specific thing that you've been thinking about or do well, you was I was,
0: like- was going to ask about law of attraction a little bit because okay. I know that we've talked about that, I know you have let's get into that like you've read Napoleon Hill stuff, thinking grow rich mm-hmm. you, you've played with this stuff, and this is an area where I find it really interesting because I've been diving into this pretty, not pretty deep, but fairly deep the past year or two. And, but then this voice in me, that's like, I don't want to assume the law of attraction is real as an actual metaphysical truth, because that'll sort of uh, compromise my own critical thinking. And I'm I'm not going based on evidence. I'm going based on faith. On the other hand, I I have a hypothesis that, the law of attraction can only be fully in full force to your benefit of of creating what you desire by focusing on it and visualizing it and all the things it's not going to be in full in for full force unless you step into that unwavering faith without questioning Mm. so like how do you see that that is uh that's such a common
1: dilemma so growing up you know in the evangelical christian world. And, and I'm still a Christian today. Um, this idea of like faith, right? If you have faith as small of, as a mustard seed, you can, you can say to that mountain, throw yourself into the sea and it will happen. And stories of, you know, Jesus healing people, the apostles healing people. And there's interesting stories I was just reading in the book of Acts, uh, a couple of days ago where Paul, I think it was Paul. I think it was Paul. It might have been Peter, but, um, there's a, there's like a, a, a guy who's injured or crippled or something and he's, he's, he says like, you know, heal me. And it says, is really interesting. It says, Paul stared at him deeply, like looked at him intently in the eyes for a long period. And then he saw that he had faith and he told him to be healed. And it's such a weird thing. It's like, so if he, if he looked at his eyes and saw that he like, wasn't sure that this was possible, he wouldn't have done. Right. And Jesus says this too, your faith has healed you because of your faith, you are healed. So like, it's almost like the people that come to him asking to be healed and believe it's possible. Somehow that makes it possible. And that creates this weird, like there's a level at which that seems, there's a level inside of us that intuitively that, that seems kind of right. There seems to be something to that, that like we sort of know is true, but there's also this weird, terrifying aspect to it where you're like, where it feels very unfair and it feels very strange. And it feels like you get in this paradox, right? It's like, if you've ever been familiar with, um, and I only am through, uh, through our good friend, TK (laughs) Coleman. (laughs) <laughs> not throwing him under the bus by saying this he's intellectually curious and interested in everything. So I'll just put that out there And like, if you've ever looked at like, like game theory, like how to, how to like win women or like that whole like pickup artist community thing. It's that same paradox where like, if you need a girl to, to give you attention, you won't get it. But if you don't need it, right. It's like, if you have true confidence that you're the man, people will think that you have confidence and you'll get the results of someone who has confidence. And if you don't, so then you're like, okay, so how does that work? If the very, if the very types of dudes who are, who lack confidence are the ones that are going to go read how to be a dude who has confidence. Cause they're not getting women and they're like how to get women. And it's like, have confidence. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. I have confidence, <laughs> right? All right. Have confidence. Have confidence. the type of person that needs to tell themselves have confidence. It's like, it's not real, right? It's like, you don't have confidence so that you know, she'll think I'm confident. And then she, and it's like, well, no, 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 you can't care what she thinks. Well, why else are you doing it? You're doing it so that she'll, she'll think that you're cool. But if you care what she thinks, you can't get it. But if you, right, it's like this weird. And so yeah. getting stuck in that, I remember growing up, you know, in, in, um, you know, Christian household and my dad is, is in a wheelchair. He was in a car accident when I was young and, you know, many times prayed for him for healing over the years and like f- wondering, do I just not have enough faith? Like, would my dad be healed if I had enough Mm. faith? Like, is it like, I just don't believe it hard enough. And I'm not going to sit here and claim that that's not possible. Like, I, I think there is something true about having a level of faith or understanding of the way the world actually works. And maybe that's a better word than faith. Understanding the way the world actually works. If you actually see and understand it, then you can sort of do more. Right. It's like in the matrix, like it didn't work when Neo just sort of like tried to make himself believe it was like, he had to see things differently. He had to suddenly see how it actually works. And it's kind of, it's kind of similar to uh, CS Lewis has a definition of faith. It's like, faith is not just believing something despite no evidence for it. It's more like when you've seen the evidence and you, and you all of a sudden have the moment where like, Oh, I see how this actually works. Later, when you're in a period where that's a costly belief to maintain, or you're doubting what you ha- already came to, to see as true, it's basically having faith in your prior self. It's having faith in the revelation that you had or the, or the logical conclusion you came to at a time when it was easy to do so. Um, so in the moment when there's a, maybe a social cost, like maybe you arri- arrived at some belief about something and you saw it with your own eyes and it was true. You didn't just believe it for no reason. There was good evidence and good logic. And then later you're in a social environment where nobody else agrees with that and you're, and they're going to dislike you for that. Faith is like I got to go with what I know is true, right? Like that's I think a better definition than just sort of. So anyway, kind of adding all these jumbled thoughts together in, in terms of law of attraction, I I believe that once you sort of see how things work, you can't unsee them and they change who you are at a fundamental level, which makes you capable of attaining what you actually want more effectively. If you are trying to get the things that you want simply by sort of repeating the mantras but you don't yet see how things actually work and it hasn't changed you at a fundamental level, then I think it's very hit or miss. Now it doesn't mean the mantras are useless, right? I mean this is a this is why ritual exists. This is why in in religion Things like structured prayers and sacraments and all these things exist because it's like if you had to understand metaphysically exactly how everything worked in the world first, then no, we'd all be screwed. So it's kind of like, hey, you know, like like rules of thumb, heuristics, old wives tales, right? Like they're like, hey, this is a good enough thing to just do. And there's sometimes we're participating in it before you understand it can actually start to transform you. And then you can start to understand it. So I'm, so I'm not like trying to discount that, but I do think that ultimately it's the transformation that matters. So being someone who genuinely believes they can achieve the goals they set out for themselves, that's the part where you increase the likelihood dramatically, not hundred percent, but dramatically that you will achieve and exceed those goals. Being someone who doesn't believe that, but, but says to themselves every day, I believe I can achieve those goals. That's not going to get you to the goals, but it is possible that it will slowly begin to work on you and transform you into the type of person who actually believes you can get to the goals. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I mean, the paradox, it's, it it gets really fascinating, but the idea of believing in yourself absolutely is going to give you better results. What I get curious about is, is there actually a law? Like, is there a law? Like there's a law. Of, of gravity it's law of attraction like is there something is there mechanistically something happening in the greater universe that is supporting you or is it really just yourself but the, it, i, I don't think there's a difference matter
1: i don't think there's a difference so, so let me put it huh. this way like the answer is yes this is a law now if you want to if you want to break down like what does that mean that it's a law well, you could say, you know, okay, maybe to call it a law, we'd have to say something like, if I like believe real hard and say certain things, maybe it like out there in the world, you know, I'd say I want more money and I'm like, I want to be rich. And I'm like, be rich, be I want to be rich, I want to be rich. And then like some neutrinos bounce off of each other and they like, you know, trigger a a response in the brain of a rich guy. And he says, I'm going to send a check for a million dollars to Joel bind. Right. Like if, <laughs> if that's what we mean by law of the universe possible, but unlikely. Right. But what about someone who's, who says, Hey, I'm, I'm like, there's nothing wrong with me. Like I'm a pretty interesting person and I'm going to try to be interested in other people. Cause I know they'll be interested in me. Someone who says that to themselves, And adopts that mindset consciously when they go out into the world, if they put it into action and they make themselves walk up to people and introduce themselves and say hello. Now we're talking mathematical probabilities here. Every person they interact with is connected with 150 whatever other people. And every time they let them know about one of their interests or show interest in them and create some social capital, the odds that someone who that person knows who might have some kind of opportunity or other person or relationship that's relevant to your interests increase. And they increase exponentially because it's a network, right? For every one of those people. And that legitimately, like irrefutably increases the odds that you will have more opportunities that are of interest to you. And you'll get more bites at the apple, right? And so like, by choosing to put into practice these sort of beliefs, it's it's like, okay, I believe that I'm interesting and that I can connect with people. Now I'm going to make myself go try it, right? And the belief helps you, helps you. It doesn't do it automatically, but it helps make that easier. If you're cultivating that in your mind, you're visualizing it, you're believing it, then going out and doing it. And now you're genuinely, and like that, that's how that's how people get jobs and meet future spouses and like it's through people that like hear about them and know about them and they hear about them and know about them because of their demeanor, right? It's like someone who's unhappy is less likely to get approached and have conversations start. Fewer conversations mean fewer relationships, fewer relationships, fewer friends, fewer friends, fewer people saying, hey, my buddy is hiring right now. You should check it out, right? Like that's just a very, very real thing. That's, that's an easy way to prove. So either way, whether or not there's some like, unseen thing happening metaphysically, just taking what's seen and what's knowable. And and I give you an even more concrete biological example. My wife and I, after our first child, we had a, a miscarriage and then we couldn't get pregnant for five years. And this is like fairly well known and documented. The stress of trying to get pregnant and not being able to get pregnant is not good for hormones and your hormones impact your fertility. So it's like this weird cycle, right? It's like the more you're trying really hard and stressed about pregnancy, the harder it is to get pregnant. That's like a biological reality. So what is the like, what is the exact connection between the mind and the body? I don't know, but I know that it's real. And I think it's real enough to call it a, a, a part of objective reality.
0: Yeah. It's almost like focusing on figuring out the mechanism ends up getting in the way. And it's like, whatever the mechanism is it is a part of reality like that seems to be that seems to be self evident it's like whatever the mechanism is it's part of this thing called objective reality and maybe we can't explain it just like i heard you talk with steve on another show about um the analogy of if a little kid tastes ice cream and it tastes amazing well the child doesn't know like how the taste buds like interact with the sugar, sugar molecules and the, the science of the wow experience, but that experience is happening. So from a, from a personal transformation standpoint, it's absolutely relevant to tap into this like law of attraction and, and the power of the mind. Um,
1: and, and, and not worrying, like ultimately the the concern is usually about not wanting to be made a fool
0: yeah, that's and where I was going because i'm just I'm just kind curious, like, is there any risk? The part of me that doesn't want to believe it fully is like there's a risk that I'll be outsourcing my independent thinking.
1: Yeah, and I might flip that on its head and say the concern for being a fool, you've already outsourced your your thinking. you've outsourced it to this ideal of not being easily duped or mm-hmm. the opinion of others, right? Like, well, as long as I'm someone who is never duped, well, you can be never duped on your way to a miserable death, but nobody ever got you. Damn it. They never tricked you. They never got you to believe in hokum. Well, like who cares, right. right? Like you lost, you were a slave to the, to the image of never being duped. And I think that's a lot of the, like, when you look at kind of like the new atheist movement that was really big in the nineties and stuff, a lot of interesting thinkers and a lot of interesting stuff in there. But this. Very like crusty, unhappy cynicism that was like, no one will ever say they tricked me. You know, like I, like the, 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 like the debunker approach to life where all I'm going to do is go out and find where people are making things sound better than they really are and prove that they're wrong. Okay. Who gives a shit? Like you could be right every time you do that. How's that working out? Like, are you happy? Are you, are you going somewhere? Now, I'm not saying it's pot- you could be going somewhere. I'm not saying that there's no role for skepticism, criticism, debunking, not being made a fool. But that it's a, it tends to be a very dangerous notion because you become a slave to that. And, and I think that's like, again, I just make a, an analogy to, you know, in uh, Christ said, um, like, you have to be a fool. And, and uh, Paul said, I'm a fool for Christ, right? Like, you have to be willing to be a fool. And I think it that doesn't mean, okay, just go do something stupid that has no causal connection to anything. There's no logic for it. There's no evidence for it. It's more like, again, that C.S. Lewis definition of faith. When you kind of know and you've kind of seen how something works, but you, you can't necessarily break it down and defend it in every particular, but you do know that it works. And more importantly, you know that it works for you. You got to let go of the need to explain it to everyone else at some level. Like I love philosophy and and analyzing things, but you know, if you tell somebody, Hey, if you walk into this room and it's dark, there's this little button on the wall, push it. And then the room will be illuminated. And they're like, yeah, but how do I know that's going to work? Explain how you're like, well, I don't know. I don't really understand electricity, but like there's some wires behind the wall and some shit that some guy, Benjamin Franklin with a kite, I don't know, you know, (laughs) then they're like, I'm not going to be fooled. You're like, well, just try it. I'm not going to be fooled. If you, if you get them to try it and it works and then they're like, okay, that worked one time, but I'm not going to be fooled. I'm not going to go around pressing buttons inside every room and hoping that light magically appears. Like who's the fool, right? Who's the fool? The pragmatist Mm. is less foolish. Hey, I don't fully understand this, but I know that it works. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to explore it and investigate it and try to learn more because I'm curious. But in the meantime, it works. I'm so it has keep utility
0: doing. in your life and your happiness and your freedom. But like if you were on your deathbed and you somehow you got the answer from, from the cosmos about the metaphysics of this. And it was like, not, maybe not the cosmos. You got, you got the answer from the scientist. who's like, actually, this is the actual uh, axiomatic proof about that. There's no, there's no non-material world or there's no whatever. Yeah. Like, are you okay with that?
1: Oh, 100%. Cool. Okay. Right? 100%. If somebody came to me and and on my deathbed, it was like, hey, you know how when you turn on a light switch, you thought it was completing an electrical circuit and sending wire. Turns out that was all hokum, that none of those wires were even necessary, that something in your mind that believed that was happening was triggering a light fairy and the light fairy just was in a good mood and decided to turn on the light every single time, but that's not statistically necessarily going to happen. And now we're entering a new phase where the light fairies are unhappy and it's not going to work anymore. <laughs> I would be like, I don't care. Right. What does Either that mean? Way, to me? Like, yeah, that they, like, I mean, they, it's, I mean, in the, in the intellectual sense, that's really interesting. And I would start to think of all these other possibilities and whatever. Right. That's all that science does though, is, is like, Oh, you really thought this was happening, but all along it was this. And Guess what science always is 100% of the time science is wrong. You heard me right. 100% of the time, whatever is called science at any given snapshot in time is wrong at another snapshot in time. So why, why did you care what that consensus or fake consensus or propagandized consensus? Why do you care what that is? If you are getting results from a certain type of belief and a certain type of outlook that says, Hey, I just know, I mean, I'm gonna give you one right now. And I've done a lot of research on this stuff and tried to understand fully all the mechanisms of what's going on. I have some ideas of some of the things going on, but I don't even have very much faith in those, but I'll tell you three days a week, I take two ounces of raw beef liver and eight ounces of homemade bone broth. And I blend it up in the blender and I drink that shit. And guess what? Uh, makes me feel great. And I had all kinds of immune system problems and whatever that seemed to be gone and that seems to be the main thing that makes them go away right. and as long as that seems to be true, I'm going to keep doing it. Now, if you wanted to ask me how I came about that and whatever, I could give you some articles I read, some threads that I followed and and I had some things that pointed me to that. It wasn't just like I randomly got the idea one day, but but even if I did, if I had a dream and a figure in a dream said Isaac Eat raw liver and bone broth. The type of person I am, I probably wouldn't do it, at least not the first time. If I had that dream every night for like 10 nights, I might be like, okay, maybe I should try this, right? doesn't matter though, ultimately, whether I came to that from reading a bunch of papers and following all sorts of research and over the course of a year and a half, which I did and being like, this is worth trying all that matters, Cause I've done that with other things that I tried that didn't do anything for me that I was like, okay, I'm open to this. I'll try it. Didn't do anything, including pretty much everything in conventional medicine which has all the science and papers behind it. None of that shit did anything for what I was experiencing. The the beef liver seems to. I'm not going to claim it's going to for anyone else. I'm not going to go proselytize for it, but I'm going to keep doing it. I don't care if people think it's stupid. There's probably somebody listening right now who's like, what an idiot. It's like that liver king guy. There's this whole bunch of people that are obsessed with beef liver. They think that's the cause. Let me tell you what's really going on, blah, 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 blah. And they could be right. I don't care. They can think I'm a fool. I'm a happier fool than I was when I was sick seems like this is
0: this is where i do think the scientific method just has limitation because i don't think you can actually control for every variable like if you take the human body and everyone's body is different and then and then you 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 add in the fact that the mind is connected to the body and people's beliefs and placebo whatever it is there's so many factors going on that these scientific studies yes like don't get me wrong listeners like there's so much value in looking at the research to, to find patterns it's just like at the end of the day how does it as it apply, um, yeah. to the individual.
1: Yeah. And, and I think by the way, you can go wrong in any direction, right? So yeah. it's not like, it's not like I'm just saying, oh, if you follow, you know, trying to be like all scientific and only doing what the experts say, and you're going to miss out. You should just do the things that, that yeah. work or the things that non-experts say. It doesn't mean there's no, there's no danger of going wrong in the other direction because I've met plenty of people are capable of accurately diagnosing problems with incentives and in the scientific community problems with, uh, you know, scientific studies being non reproducible and, and they diagnose, you know, problems with mainstream medicine, whatever. And they can go so far where they're basically like now anything that is not mainstream medicine approved, they just like latch on. Right. And you can become superstitious in either direction. I think people that just think whatever like medical journals and doctors say is probably true are superstitious. And I think people who think the opposite of that is probably true are also superstitious, right? So like all these home remedies, every, you can become a crazy person in either direction. And so I think it's always coming back to what are you trying to get? And if you can be brutally honest, that's why I always say self, self self-knowledge and self-honesty are the hardest things in the world but they're the keys to everything. They're so painful, so painful. People think that's an exaggeration. They're so painful. Because if you can say, let me be honest with myself. Like, What do I actually want when it comes to, let's say, my health? And you might think, well, that's obvious. I want to feel well. But I can point to you tons of examples of people who will choose to do something that actively makes them feel worse if it makes, for example, their mother bother them less, right? So what they really want is someone in their life to get off their back, or they want the respect and approval of peers, or they want, it could be any number of things, or they want to be able to say to people, I'm the type of person who does all these amazing, crazy things. They want the, the, the dopamine of people liking those Instagram posts about their crazy diet more than they actually want health. And like, I'm not saying that as a condemnation without any value judgment on which one you should want more. What matters is you need to know which one you want more. Which one do I actually want? If I'm lying to myself and saying I want health, but really I want likes on Instagram, I'm going to be really inefficient at achieving it. But if I'm just honest and say, hey, what I really want is I just want recognition and accolades for shit. Well, there's probably a more efficient way to get to that, right? And to like understand the trade-off. So I think that's where it gets really hard is like asking what do you want and then asking What's the most likely the best way to get there? And always being open-minded as that shifts and changes over time. And then like that's where you explore all the possibilities and you just keep adjusting. The thing that I really want is this. And don't be ashamed of whatever you find, right? Whatever you really want, whatever you find, like that's okay if that's what you want. There's there's a healthy way to get to pretty much anything that you that you desire, any like genuine root level desire. I think there's pretty much always a healthy way to get there. When you when you try to Pretend that you don't have that desire and say that you really desire something else. That's when you start to get warped and twisted, and you start to like do really nasty things that are bad for you and bad for everyone else because you're you're wrapped up in this web of of self deceit and like. Anyway, I got all I I got all all sort of (laughs) off track there, but
0: well, no, the self knowledge and self honesty. That's that's really where it comes back to independence, right, and freedom and and independent thinking. And and in that vein, I'm curious to kind of. Shift the spotlight a little bit towards towards child raising and and where one's relationship to faith might come in, and, and your take on this, because obviously like, your 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 number one core value is is freedom, right? And you want people to to be able to think for themselves, and so I'm curious about like with with your take. On faith and and specifically like Christianity and your your upbringing and then how you're you are um relating with your children now, how do you balance this radical freedom type philosophy with with sort of the Christian frame or whatever you want to call that for yourself? Because I think a lot of people, understandably, associate religion with authority, right? Religion yeah. with do this because I said so. And yeah. I'm, I, I, that's where I like that's where I get really curious myself. Like, how do you just, just riff on that, 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 that sort of dichotomy?
1: Yeah. It's a, such a chant, like the one area in life where I have the least confidence that I'm, that I know what I'm doing is parenting. It's like, it's so hard and I'm, and I'm learning and changing all the time. So I'll give you just like a little background on the way that we've approached this with our kids. Our oldest is 18. And then we have, uh, 13, 12, and six, six year olds. So, quite a, quite a big span, quite a big gap from the oldest to the youngest. You know, I grew up in a, in a very Christian home in a, I would say in like a really healthy way. Like it was not, I never felt like oppressed by it or like you got, you know, just like stupid, thoughtless demands or anything like that. I'm a very rebellious person. I'm a very independent person. I never felt constrained by the, the form of Christianity that I grew up with, um, in the, in, in, the household I grew up with, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Like I rebel from many conventions, but, um, not really that now I did, you know, sort of after growing up in that I did like in my later teen years and things in the context of church and various Christian groups, me and a lot of other young guys, especially got really philosophical, started exploring, you know, other forms of Christianity you know, Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, um, all kinds of different objections and different ways of approaching things, and like, you know, hey, the way that I grew up in this particular church environment, here's all the things that it was missing and lacking, and here's like the true stuff, and like, I think that's a phase that's very normal and healthy for people to go through with with any anything that any paradigm they grow up in, right? Um, I, I actually think that's healthier than like the straight up whatever paradigm I grew up in. Either I just repeat it, or I completely reject it and rebel right. against it. Those can be okay. I'm not saying those are always I'm not gonna make universal, but I think it tends to be healthier to be like, okay, let's just like give the most charitable thing possible and say that this is not all foolishness, but like let's probe and find out where did these things come from, what's missing, why, you know, blah, 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 blah. So um kind of went through went through that really, really rigorous sort of intellectual phase starting in my late teens. Um, got into philosophy more broadly, got into exploring a lot of other religions and belief systems. Um you know, lots and lots of friends from various beliefs, atheists, agnostics, you know, different religious and, and like love those conversations and discussions was not threatened by them. And I think my own approach to Christianity broadened, I would say so broad that it was maybe like overly broad at, 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 some point. And so when we had our first child, um, and he was very, he's, he's a very like deep thinker. He's a kind of an intellectual type of a kid. And we took like a totally hands-off approach. My wife and I were both born and raised in a very you know, Christian home where it was just kind of taken for granted. Like you read the Bible together, you study the Bible, you go to church, you pray with each other, et cetera. Um, so we didn't we didn't really do that stuff with my son. Like we would pray for him when he went to bed if he wanted us to, and he usually did. Um, we would pray before meals. We went to church, but then we went through phases where we didn't, mostly because he he didn't like it. And we're like, okay, we're not going to make him. He hated, like he would go to Sunday school from the time he was like six, he would get in like theological debates with the teachers. (laughs) And and, like, he had questions they couldn't answer because most of them were just kind of repeating things and be like, this is what you need to do. Jesus said this. And he'd be like, why? That doesn't make any sense. And then they wouldn't know what to do. And then he would lose respect for them. And I'm like, he's not a genius. I don't mean that like, he's very (laughs) deep thinking though. And he's very combative. And so like, he doesn't like to be you know, told what to do. He hates it when people try to just like appeal to authority or whatever. And so, and it was like, I was like, it's hard to argue with him because they don't know how to respond. Now. I always felt like, Oh, well, there's a great response for that. Like, like his questions to me were not like a threat to Christianity. And as he got older, I remember he was eight years old and he told uh, my mom one time she was babysitting him. He said he was having a crisis of faith <laughs> at eight <laughs> years old. Um, so like, we were very hands-off with all of that stuff. And I think I didn't realize until quite a few years later that I took for granted, because I grew up in such a sort of Christian anchored home, I took for granted all of the benefits of that. And I didn't associate them with that particular sort of outlook of like, Hey, when you confront something you, that's troubling, you pray for it. You pray for other people. When you're thankful for something, you thank God for that. You study the Bible and understand it. You have, I, I valued all those things myself, but I didn't realize how valuable they were just to me as a person in general in life until later. And I was like, came to a point, my wife and I were like, I think we've been like too, too uninvolved or too, too, because I was kind of like, I just want to let my kids like go through and they'll, and they'll decide what they want to do and what they want to believe. And like you have beliefs, why hide them from your children in the interest of making sure that they're making a free choice? Because there is no such thing as a kid doesn't grow up in a vacuum where it's like all ideas and perspectives and philosophies are equally likely to be true or untrue. And they get to choose in a world of complete intellectual right. freedom. That's not possible, right? So like my wife and I have beliefs about whether or not it's safe to ride a bicycle without a helmet. We could be wrong about those. We don't care if we're wrong. We're like, that's what you do in this. We have beliefs about being polite and what, how you behave in the household. You don't scream really loud at night when other people are sleeping. We impose that belief on our children. Why, like, so why not say, hey, this is what we believe in how we approach things let's pray, let's read the Bible together, let's go to church as a default. Now, I'm not ever going to be like super authoritarian about it. But I think we were too worried about imposing that, even though neither of us had a negative experience with it. We were kind of like, well, we're just like, so, you know, we're just all like cool and different and like, you know, free range parents and all this stuff. And I I think that, I think it would have been better to have a little bit more of an anchor there if for nothing else then it's a really good point to spur debate and discussion if you're open to that and and we are like my son will debate and discuss everything um but to have something as a starting point because like those are my beliefs and those are my wife's beliefs so why would i be afraid to sort of use those as the baseline beliefs in our household um so anyway that's kind of like so now i see it as as just that like hey we're you know We're, we're doing these handful of things where we, you know, we pray before meals, we go to church, we, we, you know, go and serve in various ways. We do various things that are part of our, our faith. And if our kids, for the most part, when they're young, they just go along and do it and they enjoy it. And if they get to a point where they're like, this is dumb, or why are we doing this? I'm totally unthreatened by that. And more than happy to have the conversation. Or if they're like, I want to stay home from church for these reasons to be like, okay. Now I might offer some sort of challenge to them, but I'd, but I'd be like ultimately all right, right? At least when they get to an age where it's not just them trying to like sneak candy or whatever, right? <laughs> they actually have a reason and a thought through. So, um, yeah, I would I would say it's it's like any other it's like any other like you're it's not possible to be a parent without setting your kids on a default, which is whatever my parents do and say is more likely to be correct than what other people do and say, that's how kids are. That's how they're always going to be. Doesn't matter. So what you do have to do is worry about what you do and say, if it's what you really believe and what you really want to believe and what you want your kids to believe, because they will mirror that. So like, if you know that you feel comfortable with it, then there's no reason to be worried about like that biasing your kids. They're going to be biased. They were born to you. Mm -hmm. They're going to be biased to your worldview and experiences.
0: Yeah, a couple of reflections. One is like the misconception a lot of people have about like what unschooling is and that it, I'll just call it like ideal unschooling, freedom oriented parenting or whatever, free range parenting, <laughs> that that needs to mean that you're completely hands off and not involved. Like that's, that's a misconception. So you can be involved and you can engage. But you touched on one of these, one of my favorite words in this, in this topic, which is impose. I often philosophize about the difference between expose and impose, mm. right? So, in the school context, I talk about, you know, people people say, "Well, you need school so that you can you, you can expose kids to a wide range of ideas, uh, supposedly," <laughs> Um and a lot a lot of a lot of, of different topics.
1: Sick things selected <laughs> yeah. by the bureaucrats <laughs> at the school board.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, but even if we just grant that premise, it's like, yep. We're exposing them to this. Like, no, you're not exposing them. You're imposing. You're, you're saying you must do this or else it is, it is imposed. It is coerced. Right. So, like, I find, I like to think there's a, there's a way to, to find that balance where you can be inviting and rather than, let's take the example of like, like you said, we don't, we don't, we don't scream in the house, uh, after 10 PM or whatever can you, can you have a negotiation with that without just making this, this is the rule because I said, so like, how do you find that? And you, you, I I invite you to riff on that example or any example, but how do you find that, that balance with perhaps just making suggestions and invitations and requests rather than orders and demands?
1: Yeah. And, and I think this is one of the hardest things that happens when you kind of have the the white pill moment or the red pill moment whatever you want to call it the the parenting pill moment where you're like wow kids are treated like garbage in our society and they're shoved off to schools locked in rooms they're torn away from their parents when they're too young and they don't want that yet and you know the parents just bark at them and say well I suffered when I was your age therefore you have to suffer the same things like there's no logic to it. It's, you start to have that realization and you kind of come into the world. You start reading, you know, uh, like Daniel, uh, what is it? Uh, Peter Gray and Daniel Greenberg and all, you know, it's like unschooling and free range kids on peaceful parenting. And those are all one, like wonderful, totally, really awesome stuff has been really helpful to me. What often happens then is the only thing you think about is constraints on yourself as a parent. Okay, now mm-hmm. I just need to constrain myself and not interfere with my children in any way, shape, or form. And you start to get obsessed with this. And I remember I have a, a friend who uh, great, great guy, Jeff Till, and he wrote a, a great book called Rise Above School. Um, very much in the same vein, you know, peaceful parenting, unschooling, all that stuff. And he, he his kids were in school. He kind of had this revelation himself. But he said he was on some unschooling Facebook forum or something. He's like, it's crazy the posts on there. It's like, hey. My 10 year old son, you know, he was exaggerating, but he's like, My 10 year old son keeps stabbing the neighbor's dog. Um, What do I do? I'm afraid to tell him no. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) and I have encountered some unschool, you know, families where, like, that is not too far from the truth. It's like the parents become terrified of the children, and the children run the household because the parents are thinking about how to constrain themselves, but children need constraints as well. Like humans need constraint. That's actually one of the things they crave. And one of the things they want, they want to know boundaries and borders. They want to know and part of the, and and like, I'm totally behind the idea of natural consequences, parenting, for example, like, Hey, let your kids do things and then they'll suffer the natural consequences. But I think there's a miss if you think that's the only, that's the only thing that you should do, right? Because according to that logic, it's like, Hey, don't tell your kids not to go in the street, let them suffer the natural consequences. They get hit by a bus and they die. Well, okay. That's obviously a problem, but it scales back to other lesser things too, right? So the whole, the whole way that children are born and, and their their human growth process is like, they get this benefit. Like a lot of animals are born like they can run and walk around and hunt and defend themselves like very, very quickly. Humans can't. And part of the reason is because we have a huge head because we have a huge brain, right? And like, we need to, we need, it takes us time. So we have this really, really high cost, long process of getting to the point where we can, where we can thrive and survive in the world. And the point of that is to create some version of the world that is real enough. So we're actually learning how to thrive in the world, but that is not totally real. So we don't die. You don't put an infant in the grocery store and say, go find out how to feed yourself, right? Like you, you do those things and you create this little mini world. That's easier than the real world. And it (laughs) gets progressively more like the real world as they get older. And it's a little different for each kid, what that pace is until it's totally the real world. And that's the natural thing. And I think the, the error has been you create this artificial world that's 100% sheltered from the real world. It's totally about serving the needs of the adults and what they w- want the kids to become someday and what they wish they would do to stop annoying them today. And they're in this completely sheltered phony factory world for 20 years. And then they're kicked out into the real world. And no wonder they can't survive. And they're like mad. And they're just like, you know, the opposite is like, cool just do nothing and and then let the kid experience the full real world from day 1 with all of the freedoms and responsibilities entailed that's going to kill them or you it's not healthy either so there there has to be some kind of some kind of process along the way and so i think like a really good rule of thumb for me now i'm not i'm not going to go like super deep on trying to establish this and argue it from every corner but i'm just going to use it as a heuristic really useful heuristic has been how would I treat a friend, or a peer, or a roommate, or someone who rented from me? Now, when kids are very little and they're babies and whatever, it, it doesn't work that well. But once they get to like the reasoning age, like age six to to whenever they move out, right? That's actually really useful because if you had a roommate or you had someone who rented from you, you wouldn't let them scream loudly while you're in bed every night trying to sleep. You wouldn't let them, you know, like eat all your food and <laughs> not ask you ahead of time, You right? Like, so you would, you would have a conversation with you and say, Hey, look, this is my house and there are certain rules, right? Now you may say in our house, we do this, certain things this way in your room. You have a higher degree of freedom, but not total freedom at first. Cause you you can't, you, you can't hand, you can't fulfill all of those things, right? You can't handle all of the duties Therefore, you can't quite handle all of the freedoms, right? You don't just get to do whatever you want in your room. You have to slowly kind of little by little gain more of that in a larger and larger sphere. So first, the kid kind of earns total freedom and total responsibility over their room and then kind of over what they do with their time and then like more and more, right? Over time, what they eat. Now, I know some people are like, just let kids eat whatever they want. They'll eat a bunch of junk. They'll feel sick and they won't want junk anymore. I have not observed that to be true, but it may be true. I'm not saying it's not true or it couldn't be true. Maybe I just didn't have a tolerance for letting it go long enough. (laughs) But my kids are able to make themselves sick on junk food many, many times in a row and keep wanting to do it. And I'm like, okay, I don't want them to be my slaves, but I'm not going to be their slave either. And if your kid is sick all the time because they're eating junk, you're their slave. You can't go anywhere. Hmm. You can't do anything because you got a kid who's sick. Well, that's not right. That's not how life works, that's not a good way to learn and to come up. So it's like, let's put some strictures on it and let's constrain choice, give them choice, but constrain the amount of choice that they have at any given time, and then let that expand. So when it comes to any particular conflict, like I never, I never use violence and I try to not use, you know, yelling or sort of like emotional violence but sometimes i mess up and lose it and i'm just like mad right and i try as much as possible to never use appeals to authority and nothing better than that i try to have discussions negotiations and lay out justifications and logic for things and and to like to say here's the ideal you and the kid just naturally agree without any discussion on what course of behavior is the best and everybody just does it. Great. That's the ideal. Okay. That's rare. But then the next best thing is you disagree, but you have a reasoned discussion. You both negotiate and compromise and you come to some agreement and that's great. The next best thing is you have something approximating that, but you kind of have to exert a little bit of influence to say, okay, we can discuss within these parameters, but we're not going to discuss things outside of these parameters. I'm just saying no to those. And then the next best thing is, you know, a much tighter set of parameters. And then like, it starts to get to the crappy, but sometimes sometimes necessary where it's like, you're not going to understand, you're going to disagree and that's okay, but you're going to do it anyway. That's necessary sometimes. Hmm. It, it, like it is. And then they're like, hopefully you never have to resort to yelling or whatever. Now, if your kid runs out in the street and you're like, get out of the street. And they're like, no, you might have to be like, Get out of the street right now. And you might have to run and tackle them to prevent them from getting hit by a bus. That's horrible. You don't want it yeah, to happen. Yeah. It may get to that level too, right? So like that's kind of it's more like focus on maximizing for the ideal, but recognizing that you don't need to constrain yourself completely to only the tools in that ideal because there are scenarios where it's worse to to, to do nothing.
0: Yeah, I would love to highlight what you said about the boundaries piece for the parent and the parent's needs. I think this is a misconception as well. And by the way, just to zoom out for everyone listening, Isaac's the experienced parent for the past 18 years. And I'm the philosopher on the sidelines for the past 18 years. Yeah. But you know what?
1: Like my, my friends, deep thinking friends who do not have children, uh, yourself, TK Coleman, and others over yeah. the years, they all almost always have. They're the most interesting for me to talk to. Yeah. If I have questions about having kids for a couple of reasons, one, they're like dispassionately, disconnected from it. So they don't, they don't have their own ax to grind, right. Their their own baggage or, or their own insecurity that they're not worried. Like if I go to another parent who, who's got kids and say like, Oh, I'm having this trouble with my kids. I was trying to do this. They're immediately going to be like instinctively worried about how they look to me. They don't want to look like a crappy parent or they want to, right. And like, there's just all this other stuff Whereas like, there's a, there's a great point of view. So I do I'm not at all one of those people that thinks, you know, oh, well, if you haven't done it yourself, you shouldn't be talking about it. Like I gladly go and talk to TK all the time and and like, help me out with my kids, TK. Give me some thoughts.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I I like, I'm actually working on this blog post. It's like, it's called like seven conscious parenting tips from a non-parent. And the whole first half of the blog post is just me like handling objections for people. Who don't want to listen to a non-parent? <laughs> <laughs> um. So, like, I, I totally agree. Um. And and I I say that just just because uh, well, just to, just to give context mainly for anyone listening, but I also say it because I like to to be idealistic. Like, I'm intentionally idealistic and curious about is there a way to to is it not possible for humanity to build parenting practices that never get to that, that fourth tier or whatever that you mentioned of just do this because I said so, or anything like, like that. So from an idealistic standpoint, I'm I'm just curious about that. Um, but yeah, I like to highlight that the, the boundaries piece seems to be also de-emphasized in that, like in that hands-off peaceful parenting, like some, some shades of that peaceful parenting world. It's like, well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna constrain myself, like you said, but I think, and if we borrow from from Marshall Rosenberg, who created nonviolent communication, talking about win-win, like that's where I'm really curious. Yes. How do we create win-win so that the parent is 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 communicating and modeling for the child that the the needs of the parent matter, right? And the needs of the child matter, and the needs of the parent matter. Now, yes, it is a it is a qualitatively different relationship than a friend to friend relationship, but how do we, how do we nurture that? And at the end of the day, it almost circles back to the beginning of our conversation about, about the science for spirituality or whatever, where you can't have a final exact blueprint answer for everything. It's, yes. it's an art, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's an art and it's integrating, integrating so many perspectives and then applying it in the moment and, and recognizing that you're probably going to mess up. Too, yeah, right? no, and
1: that's where, like, you know, to to tap into that spiritual element again, there's something so necessary for me at least to just recognize that I am flawed as a parent. Yeah. And to ask for grace and to pray that my children don't suffer unduly for the things that I've done poorly. And and like I look at my my parents, they weren't perfect. I don't hold anything against them. I feel like I've had a great life. And like, I never think about, Oh, if only they would have done this differently. And I pray that same thing for my kids that like, look, I know I'm messing up, but I hope that that's not the defining thing in their life. And then the other thing is explicitly, if you understand that there is something and you don't have to call it something spiritual, you don't have to call it the Holy spirit or revelation or special insight or whatever. You can just, Think of it as intuition or like when you know something with your knower, but you don't necessarily have some sort of scientific way, like you get a, and this is so important as a parent, you get a feeling, you get a sense, you get a judgment like, Hmm, I think that hurt my kid's feelings. What happened out there? Or I think my kid is not being entirely honest with me. You just kind of know that little voice. You have this little voice. Parents have this magical little voice where they just sort of know sometimes things that might be going on with their kids. And if, you, if you're if you like, nope, I got to just let my kids, I'll wait till they tell me, I got to have hands off and everything. That little voice gets weaker and it dies. You have to actually pay attention to it and hmm. listen to it. And the way that you execute on it is really important. If you're like, I think my kids may be being dishonest with me. And then you are just like, you're lying and I know it. Well, that's not going to get you anywhere, right? That's not going to help. That's not good. But to be like, okay. So let me just think about that. For some reason, I feel like they're not telling me the truth. Let me like try to think through this, break this down. Maybe there's a context or another time where I could like bring up this conversation again and kind of see if there's something else there and like try to get at that, try to figure out why am I getting that nagging sensation, right? Like you kind of just know things as a parent. It's weird. You really do. I remember as a mm. kid, I knew that about my mom. You know how it is. Like your parents just know shit. You It's hard, it's hard to hide things from them, right? And I think that's a, I think that's a gift that parents have. It's part of their duty and responsibility. And I also think, you know, no, you don't want to treat your kids like slaves. You don't want to put them in chains, but you don't want to let them put you in chains either. Not just for your own sake and for your own freedom, but for what it will mean for them. If you feel that way, one of the most powerful things I ever heard from, uh, and I'm, I'm not like, I don't want to get into anything else about this person or whatever else they're into. But Jordan Peterson had this thing and I've never read his book, but I know this is one of the principles in it where he said something like, don't let your kids do things that will make you hate them or something to that effect. And the reason wasn't because, Oh, I don't want my kids to be annoying me for me. It's because you need to recognize humans are capable of being monsters and you're capable of being a monster. I'm capable of being a monster. Like we all have that within us. We are all capable of being the the prison guards at, you know, Auschwitz. Like you can't just pretend that's something that other people do that you'd never do. We're all capable of that. Like under the right circumstances, don't, don't discount your capacity to do evil. And so if your kids are you feel like you're a prisoner to them because you you can't ever put constraints on them and they're running the household and they're being little tyrants and you're a slave to them and you're scared of them, or they're doing things that make you start to hate them, you are going to end up hurting them. Maybe not physically, but emotionally, psychologically, you are going to do things that are monstrous because you're going to be pushed into a spot. And like if you don't recognize your, your, your possibility of doing that then I think that's really dangerous because you're only thinking about the kid, the kid, but you indulge them so much that you start to resent them for the damage they're causing to you. And then all of a sudden you snap on them and then you put constraints on them in a really unhealthy way. You do things that damage them permanently. That's a real thing. And I think we all know this in very small ways in our lives. Like if you have boundary issues with a friend or a family member and you are afraid to tell them no. And so you say yes to things. And then you resent it later, then you'll find yourself making passive aggressive comments. Nobody, nobody wins.
0: Nobody wins. Exactly.
1: Then you do things that hurt them more than if you just would have said, no, I don't want to come and and help you this weekend. I'm I'm tired. Yeah. Right. Like that's a real phenomenon. So I think it's important to remember that like, this isn't just about you being like, well, I got to have my, you know, freedom too and make my house the way I want it. It's like, I also want to recognize my capacity to do damage to my kids by letting them run run the house and drive me crazy and then turn me into a monster. And my wife, yeah. by the way, she's, she's great at recognizing this. She's like, they're so funny. Cause I work at home and I'll hear, I'll hear her and the kids sometimes out there arguing or having discussions. She'll be like, you know, Hey kids, when you, you know, whatever, when you leave the table, put your chair back or do this or whatever. And my kids are like me, they're very argumentative. And they'll be like, She'll be like, I just try to keep an orderly house. And they're like, yeah, but all these other things over here are more disorderly. Why does moving a chair matter? Is that really that big of a deal? Is that, then they'll get in this. And she's like, I don't really care. I just know that if I start to get really irritated about that, I'm going to, I'm going to snap and I'm going to be really grumpy. Would you mind just doing it? And it like usually works because they're like, yeah, mom's right. She is or like real, right. She's like, Hey, look, maybe it's not fair. Maybe it's dumb. Maybe it's a weakness on my part and I'm a failed human. But until I have had like a half an hour of quiet in the morning, you can't talk to me about stuff. I just know if you do, I'm going to snap at you and be rude. And I don't want to snap at you and be rude. And like, she's really good at that. And she's not defending herself or saying this is how it ought to be. She's just saying, I'm telling you realistically, this is what it's like. So like, try to help me and accommodate this so we don't get into a fight. And that's actually a very, very effective. She's good at like understanding her own weaknesses and then just presenting that to the kids. Not like no one's allowed to talk to me in the morning because it's righteous and the right thing to do. Yep, and I yep. said, so it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm weak. And if you talk to me in the morning, I'm going to be rude to you. And I don't want to be rude to you. Yeah. And
0: that's, that's totally, being totally not more, throwing you
1: under the bus, honey.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. no, it's being, it's being real. It's being like, I'll, I'll feel, ir- I'll feel irritated in that situation. Like, Oh, I do feel irritated just to be able to express that is actually not that common for a lot of parents. It's like, I'm not going to show my feelings. I'm just going to, I'm going to be this, this, this robotic, almost just rule, um, just dishing out the rules, and not, not just be a real person. Uh, I, I feel compelled to to respond real quick about the Jordan Peterson thing because, uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna go down that rabbit trail. But
1: I mean, we can that, if you want to. Uh, I just don't
0: it, no. First of all, I want to say that the, I, I totally interpret that charitably uh, about again. It's about setting those boundaries. And that is for you and it's for the kid. Like that's that's a charitable interpretation there. And I just also want to add that the, dude, that chapter in his book is atrocious in so many ways, I think.
1: Yeah. So um, I've never read it. I've, yeah, only, yeah. I've only heard that <laughs> phrase and I found that yeah. phrase really useful. Yeah, that,
0: that phrase can be useful. Um. He's just, yeah, I just, I want, what's, I want what's, for people listening what, to know. Yeah. That what's atrocious, I, I,
1: not the chapter?
0: Because I've never read it. Well, he, he doesn't, he's not against spanking, first of all and he just completely just drops the ball as a, as a psychologist where he's not referring to any, any data about this. Mm-hmm. And he just goes off on his own, his own kind of intuitions about what's, what's the right way to do things. Um, So that was really disappointing. And I d- I did a whole other podcast on that, like a couple of years ago about like that one chapter in the, in that book, 12 R- rules for life. Um, That's interesting. And he, you know, and the, it's idea funny. the monster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, Again, to interpret that charitably, it's like, yeah, we have the capacity to be that prison guard. We totally do. And I think he also has like an like a like an original sin type, the child is naturally evil type stuff that that's just not that's not healthy that that gets projected in that, in that chapter. But I can kind of leave it at that. I want to, I do want to ask a, a kind of fun question because as a as an entrepreneur, I'm curious your take on this. I was. Uh, philosophizing about parenting with some other friends about this idea of chores and one of my friends he's always trying to like push the envelope and like be skeptical about about, about the skepticism and just like constantly asking questions and he's like we're talking about chores for, chi- for child raising and ways to kind of foster that in like win-win ways but then he was just like wait why? let's check the premise why do kids need to do chores what if and this is where I'm curious your take on this from an entrepreneurship standpoint. What if we treat the kids like customers? And we do everything possible to because the kid didn't the kid is um let's do everything possible to to delight the customer, right? Let's do everything possible to delight the 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 child's experience. The kid didn't choose to be to be in your family like they didn't sign up for that. Um how can you just it do they need to actually clean their room? Right? Let's question that premise. Anyway, there's different ways you could take that, but I'm just curious about like how you might like see because you're all about customer service, right? As a business person, yeah. and going above and beyond, and that's a lot what I've learned working with you and delighting and like you know, you talk about the the customer service at a place like Chick Fil A is, is going above and beyond and like serving and delighting, and like that's a beautiful thing. And I'm just curious, like, any thoughts on that? Like, what if you saw the child as a customer and you pick up after them? Because you're just serving them. Is there any value in that perspective?
1: I think it's a terrifying and terrible idea. <laughs> I really do. Here's, here's why. They're not a customer. Your goal to the customer is to create value for whatever the thing is they came to get from you that exceeds whatever they gave to you. You don't have any duty or obligation. I feel like that view of parenting, it lets you way off the hook. It makes you do all the fun, easy shit And you have no accountability to the kind of human being that your child is becoming. I think you have a duty and a responsibility when you have a child to help protect, foster, and grow that child into a competent, capable human being to the best of your ability. And you don't have that with a customer. If someone purchases something from me, my job, they could be a totally dysfunctional, messed up person. And they come to my restaurant and my job is to give them the best damn meal they ever got for 20 bucks. It's not to make sure that they are successful and healthy to the greatest of my ability for the rest of their life. And that's a good thing. It'd be horrible if that was right. I I, I would, it'd be, it'd be a brutal existence. You couldn't run a business that way. Likewise, if you treat your kids like customers, guess what? They will only know how to be customers. Do you want kids who only know how to be customers, who only know how to be consumers, who only know how to be served? They don't know how to serve. They don't know how to create value. You're going to, you're going to break them. I mean, with the caveat to all of this, that I think, especially people in the peaceful parenting community, it's easy to overestimate how much impact you have on your kids' lives. So like spanking is a great example. I don't think spanking, I think spanking is a bad idea. And I think it's something that, like, you would, TK Coleman put it really well to me. He's like, if you gave someone the option, you could resolve something without physical violence or you could resolve it with physical violence, which one's better? Well, everyone's going to say without. Okay, great. So just do that. Right. Like, that's how I view spanking. Like, don't resort to physical violence. If it comes to that, something has broken down. Don't let it come to that. And don't resort to that. Cause you start resorting to that, then you'll always resort to that. And it's always inferior. That said, I think even like, like I grew up I was spanked. Spanking was a part of our household and it was a you know just normal thing all the time. I could be wrong, I could be missing out on something, but I don't think it did any major damage to me. I really don't. I don't spank any of my kids, I never have and I don't want to. It sounds like a terrible idea to me. But I also don't resent my parents for doing that. They thought it was the right thing to do. It was part of what they did and it honestly didn't seem that like it wasn't done in anger and in like some abusive way or whatever. I think we can overestimate sometimes how much ability we have on these things. So with that as the caveat, this idea of treating your kids like a customer, like the concept of authority is not in and of itself a bad concept. So if you join a company, your boss is your authority and that's as it should be, right? Like that's, that's not a bad thing. If they tell you to do something that you don't believe is right, Then you leave, you exit that situation and you leave that authority, right? When you're a child, you need your parents for everything. When you're really young, especially you are their dependent. And that also makes them your authority right now. That's a terrifying thing for the parent. The parent is being someone's authority is not a good thing. It's not like, yay, I can tell people what to do. You are accountable for everything you do. I'm gonna come back to scripture. If you do anything to make one of these children stumble, it'd be better to have a stone around your neck and be thrown into the sea. And I think that is meant very, that's like used very intentionally. That role as an authority, especially over someone who doesn't have the capability to match you at their level of intellect and physical strength and all these other things, that is a terrifying duty. You need to treat that with the utmost seriousness. Your duty is to help them become the best version of themselves they can be and become a capable functioning human being in the world. And conditioning someone to only know how to be a customer is a really bad way to do that. I think you're letting yourself off the hook. You're just doing all this stuff that's fun and easy for you. It's way easier to just clean up everything than to, than to try to train your kids to, to clean up in that. Your kids are part of a household to learn to take responsibility This is a household that we all use. We all eat the food. We all make messes. We all have to help clean up those things. And those duties escalate with your ability as you go and with how much you're contributing to it. And then as you go out and get a job in the real world, then you have less of that because you're out of the house more and whatever. But like that's, you're teaching them how to, you're also teaching them how to run their own household in the future. And if you're not letting them do it, how are they going to do it in the future? They're not cleaning up all growing up. How are they going to clean up their own house? Like this actually, this is, this is real stuff, right? Let modeling it for them, but also having them participate in it with you. That's a very unschooling apprenticeship thing. Yeah. Let them participate in the activities.
0: They, they will want to more often than not, if you're building a, a secure, healthy foundation and you have a healthy relationship with them and you're modeling and they like well, you want
1: to, or at least be willing to, right? Like yeah. I don't want to do chores or clean up. I don't want to brush my teeth. Like, it doesn't mean that they're going to right. want to and love it. Cause I think that's what throws people off. They're like, okay, we have got to do this. Like unschooling or homeschooling or on Facebook parent. And then they're like, but my kids, I, you know, my kids are supposed to be like whistling and like, gee, mom, thanks for letting <laughs> me help clean up. I'm like bullshit. It's not going to be like that. Do you feel that way? Boy, I sure am grateful. I get to sweep the floor. No, you don't feel that way. It's just something you just freaking do and that's okay.
0: Yeah, my yeah, and I my I'm going to bring well my friends going to listen to this podcast and we'll philosophize about it more. I might have have him on. He doesn't have a hard stance on it. We're just kind of playing with ideas. And so I'm just telling the listener like this is just like a, a a fun thing to continue to philosophize about to 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 get clear on it um so that it's so that it's intentional rather than automatic. That's kind of kind of like what matters to me. And I'm sure you as well, like being just being conscious of what you're doing as a parent. Um, but I think like, yeah, I don't think it necessarily intrinsically enjoys sweeping or maybe there there could be a few kids. But I think ideally there could be the, a situation where the kid enjoys the act of contributing or the act of supporting and helping and exceeding like the value. Right. Um, so, yeah, there, there's lots of different ways we can go with I'll, that. I'll, t- but- I'll
1: tell you what it starts with. I'll tell you what it starts with with kids. They, and, and again, people hear this and they think only of the negative side of this because it is also dangerous. It can go re- It can go bad because we, as parents can abuse it. It starts with kids. They don't care about the chore. They don't care about what it does for the good of the household. They do care about your approval. And that means a lot to them. And that's not a bad thing, but it can be a bad thing. Right? So like, if you're like, Hey, you know, okay, remember we got to clean up after dinner and you're saying that, and you have to remind them all the time because they won't do it. What's going to happen is someday one of your kids is going to preemptively get up and start cleaning up. And when you're like, hey, thanks for doing that, before I even asked, you'll see a glow. And they they wanted you to be proud of them. And that makes them feel proud of themselves. And that's not a bad thing that's normal and healthy. It can easily become a bad thing if you weaponize that against them, or if they become too obsessed with it and they're like constantly trying to make mom and dad proud just so that they can be like, I'm better than the other kids and use that against the other kids, right? Like that will happen too. Uh, And you'll you'll be tempted to be like, oh, I thought you were going to do this and manipulate, you know, and use the power of them wanting you to be proud of them. But it will start as that. It's not going to be any more complex. As they get older, they will start to take pride in the fact that the house is clean, even if you don't know. When they're young, that will basically never happen. It'll be Mm -hmm. like, if they do any of that stuff without being asked... They will always come to you and be like, Did you notice I swept the floor? Because they want you to say good job, right? They want that. That's why they're doing it. That's the first level. It's like they're moving up Maslow's hierarchy, right? And like the first level is like, I want someone else, I want my parents to be proud of me. And then they'll get to the stage where like that doesn't matter as much. And it's like, I'm just, I just am happy that the house is more clean because it needed to be clean, right? And then they'll kind of like, and then it gets to a level where ideally it's just not, you just don't think about it at all. Like when I sweep the floor, there's no thought involved. There's no like, I'm doing this because it makes me happy. I'm doing-. You just do it because it's a habit and it's just part of taking care of, taking care of things. And, and that's actually the safest place to be for tasks like that, because then you're not manipulatable or you're not going to hold that over other people passive aggressively and be like, I swept the floor. Weren't you going to thank me? Right. Like you get rid of those unhealthy things once it gets to the level where you're, it's detached. It's just something that you do without thinking about it. But kids, kids won't start there. And they won't start with some logical thing like I'm sweeping the floor because blah, 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 blah. It's like first they'll just be like, I don't want to do it. I have to be told. I have to be reminded. And then they'll just do it begrudgingly because they don't want to be told and reminded. And then at some point, they'll do it on their own because they want you to be proud of them. And then at some point, they'll do it because they have other reasons for wanting to do it, right?
0: Good stuff, man. It's fun to philosophize about this. And uh, I want to shift to – we have a few minutes left to a, a few rapid fires as rapid as as possible um maybe one two minutes given your you you left you love to flesh things out but <laughs> i'll try i'll try
1: I will try to do genuine rapid fire
0: <laughs> okay, so we're shifting gears here I'm curious about so we we worked together at, at crash um for for three years and then it rebranded at as career hackers and and crash was for people listening. TLDR was a uh, was a software tool for job hunters to learn to send a video rather than uh apply to jobs the normal way. And so you you had you had founded this company coming out of praxis where you had helped people launch careers without college and and helping people launch careers by using proof of work and pitching in portfolios and all the things. You had some big visions about that. And A lot of audacity to 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 make this thing huge, raised raised a big round of funding and all the things, and you know, a thousand fifteen hundred people got a lot of a lot of great results with the tool, but it didn't scale, and that started to become evident in the the, you know the last year or so of Crash, and you've you've touched on like how that was kind of hard to see that, but we'd love to like a little bit more. Like reflections left you a little bit more what was that like in that exactly. last year
1: yeah it was it was it was really frustrating because on the one hand, I knew the principles undergirding the company were one hundred percent sound, were true, were being proved out in the world, and even more so now than ever, like in the <laughs> In the in the infocalypse, the world where there's just so much information flying around and it's so cheap to to produce and to disseminate, just sending a one page resume, just you know blasting the normal thing, you're just you're not going to get anything. Nothing's going to happen from that. Increasingly, especially because now you can fake it, you can have some AI bot write a bunch of resumes and submit them for you. It's like it's meaningless. There's no signal in that noise. And the more you can run your job hunt like a sales process. Go through people that you personally know, give them things that are customized and tailored to them, make something that could not be faked, show proof of work, all of these things that we talk about. It's more true than ever. So knowing that that was true, it's not like the fundamental premise of the company was disproven. It's like the major shift in the world, information is cheaper than ever. So, you know, blah, 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 blah. The the problem that this brings about, really bad signal to noise ratio. The solution for job seekers, if they want to succeed, is to go about it with this different approach. Those core pillars of the strategic narrative remain true. And the part that was a gamble was, can you help millions of job seekers to do this? And at least in the way we were trying to help them, the answer is no. And that's really frustrating for two reasons. One, because I I, you know, sort of sacrifice. I think it's not dead. I, I sold it. Uh, Praxis, the company that I originally founded prior to crash. What we were doing there, you know, because I was like, okay, we can reach hundreds of people every year with this. Maybe you could get up to 500 or a thousand, but it caps out. So I'm going to go try to do this thing where we can reach hundreds of thousands or millions. And like coming to the conclusion that even with a much more lightweight version that was supposed to be self-serve software enabled, we were literally peaked at almost the same numbers that Praxis would Right? Yeah. It's like, you can't do much more than that, it seems like. So that was frustrating that it's like, well, I guess I should have just kept doing that. Should, should I have just kept doing that? Should I have not done this? The other part that was frustrating was like, if I had never raised VC and just like done this as a little side project and just kind of started with the content and just been like, hey, let's build a movement yeah. around crashing your job hunt, then I could have built a movement and then I could have like rolled out just in a bootstrapped way rolled out some coaching services that we take a commission for rolled out some events that we sell sponsorships for do some partnerships with some products that are already out there that are building different tools, you know, for video and for managing your job hunt and like become the go-to community for job seekers who want to do things different through content, just doing that instead of trying to raise money and go build this huge product. Like I should have done it that way. So that was frustrating. And like, and then being like, here I am with this thing that's that's philosophically valuable and directionally correct, but the product itself can't scale in a venture-backed model, the company was like a dead company walking. And so I felt like a dead man walking. Like, <laughs> well, now what? You know what I mean? That was really, really hard. And for me, the hardest part was was feeling like I'm letting investors down. Now they yeah. don't, they don't care. In reality, I'm not, they don't care. They're venture capitalists. One out of 10 of their bets win. And none of them were mad ever. They were amazing. They were like, awesome. You learned. Oh, well, let me know when you're doing the next one. I'll investigate. Yeah. They all said that, like they yeah. weren't even mad at me, but I am like, I let them down. I told them I was going to build this into something that's a billion dollar company. It was going to change the world. And I didn't, I failed. And like that, that sucked. That's brutal, right? How really it was really, really tough to go through that.
0: But you know, I just love that you went for the the gold, like you went for the the platinum, like to say I want this to become a billion dollar company. And yeah, you could say in hindsight you should have done X, Y, and Z, but like it's that ferociousness to go big that I that I, I really value and yeah, I'm reading Walt Disney's biography right now and I'm just thinking about like the, the big visioning and, and, the, and just seeing some of his failures. And it's just, you know, that's, that's like, that's so much of the entrepreneur's journey. So anyway, I appreciate it. No, I mean, at the end of the day, it. it's like when you're in it, it's brutal. And I,
1: and I mean, like if you're in a startup that's not winning, it's brutal. And, and, uh, I think it was, uh, Ben Horowitz said like the, the company is wired to your nervous system, literally like physically, like physically I was really ill and I went through all kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah. But when you zoom out, I'm not going to pretend like, I mean, I, so what? Like I took a huge swing. I tried something, you know, for me, I've always been deeply connected to my work. And so like, it is hard. That makes it harder when it doesn't win. But like, Hey, I learned, I took my lumps. And level me up. Let's go. Like, I, I, I don't want to dwell on it. I, would I have done things differently if I had to do it over again? This is one of the first times in my life where I would say, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I did yeah. this, this, and this wrong, and I wouldn't do it that way again. But oh well, if I had done it all right, I wouldn't have learned anything because I wouldn't have known if I was lucky or smart. So here we go. You know, on to the next one.
0: Yeah. All right, let's skip the rapid fire. Let's, I just want to do one more question here. And we have a few minutes left. You finished your whiskey. The, you mentioned TK Coleman a few times here, and you know this is a—it's quite the one-two combo in my in my book. You guys co-founded Praxis, and also I just find it compelling the way that you have all these these overlapping philosophies and interests. You know, these two guys from the Midwest who happen to both be radical people when it comes to philosophy, entrepreneurship, personal growth, basketball, like. <laughs> And and you guys have just an incredible rapport, and would love any like any reflections. I know you're not like a sentimental guy, but like, what? How do you view that that friendship and how how special it is to you? And also any thoughts on like the uniqueness of it in in the grand scheme of things? When there's, I don't think there's many people who have that like that one two punch like that.
1: Oh man, no, my friendship with TK is. Greatest thing in the world. I mean, we've been friends for over twenty years now because I've been married twenty years, and we became friends probably two, three years before that. And I mean, I I don't know what to tell you except like I was just fortunate that I met somebody who's <laughs> so interesting, and we get along so well with. I mean, I could I could I could throw a couple things out there, but like it's interesting because over the years we have both sort of our intellectual journeys and our career journeys. Frankly have kind of like done this sort of zigzagging figure eight thing back and forth where it's like, he gets really into something and I'm doing something else. And then like a year or two later, I start getting into that thing. And then he feeds me all the stuff that he learned and then vice versa. Like he starts getting interested. Like I was really into political philosophy and he didn't know anything about it. So when we first met, he's like, tell me everything about political philosophy. So I'm feeding him all this stuff. And then like before long, I'm like, Hey, you should go speak at a fee seminar. And like, He didn't know anything, you know, about economics or anything not long before that. But he pretty Mm. quickly, I went through this long several years journey of learning all this stuff. And then when he got interested in it, he caught up in months and then vice versa. He'll go through a long journey learning about something in, you know, metaphysics or epistemology. And then when I get interested in it, I'm like, Hey, clue me in on what you found. And then he'll catch me up really quick. And so it's like, it's like having someone else out there who's always relentlessly curiously looking into stuff. And then you get to like go benefit from all the hours that they put in without putting in as many hours, um, which is really fun, really interesting. And I, and I'll just say this, like, you know, we do have a great rapport and have a great friendship over the years, but it's not, it's not like, like we've gone months before where we haven't talked. And one of the things yeah. when we first, when we first met, um, this was the age of voicemails, uh, before you had texts or anything. We are like, you know, what's one of those annoying things when someone calls you and leaves a voicemail and then you feel all this pressure, you got to call them back like immediately or they'll get mad and offended. We're like, how about we just never do that? How about like, if you call me and I don't call you back, you just won't ever get offended and you'll just assume the best and it won't matter. And he's like, cool, let's do vice versa. and And we have, and we have basically maintained that through all these years, we've gone through phases where we talk multiple times a day and we've gone through phases where we don't talk but once every couple months. And, you know, we've lived in the same city. We've lived in different cities. And um, that's been really key. Just like, hey, let's not be offended by that kind of thing. Um, But like we worked together and had fights and disagreements about stuff that's like not, it's not like it's all just easy and roses. But I think just recognizing when you have someone who, You can, you are never bored talking with, and I would say there's two people in my life that way, my wife and TK, who I'm never, there's no amount of time where you said, Hey, you've got eight hours with TK in the car. I would run out of that eight hours and I would have been like, well, we could have gone 10 or whatever. Like there's no amount of time where I'm like, that's probably good. Right? Like we we're there's Mm. always something interesting. Not like we're going to talk the whole time. We might not, but like, there's always something interesting. There's always something there to plumb that like to, to keep going further. If you find people like that, like stay connected with them, stay, that's all I'm going to just stay connected with them. Look for excuses to work with them. And I did like, i looked for excuses to bring TK in on everything I was doing um, as much as possible, which took a long time because he was out in Hollywood trying to be an actor. We were on totally different trajectories, but eventually we were able to do some stuff working together and that made it really fun.
0: Yeah. I didn't realize that like y'all hadn't, at the beginning of the friendship, necessarily all connected the dots with like political philosophy yet and like you were supporting each other in developing that worldview it sounds like in your early 20s
1: yeah very much so like we both have like kind of grew our own you know even the stuff on peaceful parenting education i was kind of like into that slightly before him and then he was although in in some ways some of those things he was he was ahead on as well but um yeah. Like it's really been interesting to see. Cause I'll, when I check in with them, I'm like, what have you been reading lately? What have you been thinking about lately? And half the time it's something that I'm like, oh, okay. That's kind of weird. And then like six months later, I suddenly get interested in that thing. And I'm like, oh, I see what TK was seeing Right. Or half the time it's like something that I was already I'm like, oh, I've been interested in that too. How crazy that we both are coming to the same place. Um, so anyway, been, been a ton of fun.
0: Good stuff. Thanks, Isaac. Uh, everyone check out com. You can see everything there. Check out the books. Isaac's written lots of, uh, blogs, podcasts. So, uh, yeah. Any last words?
1: Uh, no, man, this was a ton of fun. I hope I didn't hijack things and take them all kinds of directions. <laughs> you didn't want to go. Uh, I have a tendency to do no, that, it was but pretty, it was
0: pretty on point.
1: No, it, it was a ton of fun. Always enjoy talking with you, Joel. My favorite thing about talking with you, Joel, is that you are so capable of being dispassionate even when you have a passionate opinion or something that you feel strongly about, you're just capable of like just talking and being interested and entertaining uh, people's points of view. And so I never feel the need to like take the edge off of what I'm saying because there are times where I'm saying stuff where I'm like, yeah, I know you disagree with this, but I know you're not going to get mad. So I can just say it this way. And like, if you want to talk about the disagreement, we will. And if not, we'll just move on. I love that. I love that. You're just very, very capable of, having interesting conversations where you get to the part you want to talk about
0: uh, despite the things that might be disagreements. I appreciate that a lot, man. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll talk to you later, man.
1: Likewise.